Well, I don't normally do this, but I just today happens to be our oldest son's birthday, so uh, happy birthday, Calvin. Yep, he's a blessing all the time, right? <laughs> all the time. He's, he teaches us more about ourself than sometimes we'd care to know, but um, we're thankful for Calvin, and, and so, buddy, happy birthday. Well, as, as we start, we're going we're gonna to continue our sermon series in Ephesians, so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, um, and so let me... Let me just tell you before we get going that the plan was to go verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, uh, but my notes, my, the pages of my notes kept going and going, and for your sake, I cut it off after 7, and so we're only going to go through ch- verse 7 this morning, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll cover verses 8 through 10. Um, I... I when I have a lot of pages, I go back and I say, okay, what, what can I cut? Surely something needs to be cut. And then I went back through and I thought, this is all important. These are things that need to be said. And so uh, I am in charge of the schedule. And so we're just going to get through verse 7 this morning. Um, so we're going to see here verses 1 through 7. We're going to see a transformation story. And in our culture, transformation stories are, are all the rage. We, we love a good transformation story, whether it's personal, so, so biggest loser, so if it's a weight loss story, or if it's a makeover story, uh, or if it's a rags to riches story, we, we love transformation stories, or, or not just personal, if it's material, so, so home renovations or car restorations, you take something that, that once was old and, and, and not very appealing, and you restore it, or you renovate it, and you make it new, and it's a transformation, or if you're a Civil War buff, uh, we, we have the story of the USS Merrimack that was renovated, transformed into the CSS Virginia. Right? That's a story of transformation, a, a ship that was on the bottom of the ocean, then became one of the, the first ironclad ships in the Civil War. It was a tr- story of transformation. And so when we see something that, that once was one way, and it becomes something totally different, we're entertained and we're amazed. And what makes these stories so intriguing... At least I think this is why something like The Biggest Loser or the, the HGTV is so popular is because anyone can do it. As long as you have enough willpower, so, so as long as you exercise, as long as you don't eat what you normally eat, as long as you have the willpower, you can do it. Or as long as you have the right, enough money to hire the right contractor or to pay for the right fixtures and appliances, as long as you have that, then, then your home too could look like those on TV. As long as you work hard enough and you keep your eye on the prize, you can do anything you want. Well, whatever the case, we're encouraged by these stories and we're often motivated by them. But the transformation story that we're going to see here in Ephesians 2, the one that takes center stage in our passage, it's more miraculous than any of these other transformation stories that we've just been considering because this transformation story is one of, if not, the most miraculous transformation story that anyone has ever undergone. It is the transformation of all transformations. It's a complete reversal of things, a a total 180. And it's the same transformation that we read about in the lives of, of the Apostle Paul before he was Paul. He was Saul, and a transformation, total transformation takes place. Or the life of Zacchaeus, the tax collector who, who, who got rich off of collecting uh, unjust taxes, and, and he was transformed. Or the, the demon-possessed man 
in the gospel accounts that Jesus healed, who before he was naked and out of his mind, and a transformation takes place, and he's seated, calm and still, listening to Jesus. It's a transformation that Jesus talks about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And this transformation is none other than the transformation that comes with salvation. The transformation of, of conversion, the transformation of being born again. That's a transformation that, that takes center stage in our passage. And what's even more amazing about this transformation is that if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, even if it didn't look like Saul becoming Paul or, or Zacchaeus' repentance, even if it didn't look outwardly, externally like that, if you're a Christian, you've undergone the transformation of all transformations. If you're a Christian, this has happened to you. Which means that the transformation story in Ephesians is more than Paul's story. It's more than the story of his audience. The transformation of Ephesians 2 is our story. And so as we look at this, I want you to be encouraged if you're here and you're a Christian. This is, this is your biography. No matter what the externals were, this was your reality. This was my reality before I came to Christ. And so, so we should be encouraged as we learn about our biography. If you're not a Christian, this, this could be your story. And if you're here, you're not a Christian, I, I pray that, that, that this would be your story, that you would undergo this transformation. But what you should know, and if you're a Christian, what you, you already know and maybe should be reminded of, is that what distinguishes this transformation story from most others is that we are totally out of control. We can't make it happen. We can't fix ourselves. No amount of money or experience or good luck can bring about this transformation. Not even Chip and Joanna Gaines. We are too far gone. But there's hope, as we'll see in this passage. Let, let's read. Hopefully you're there. Ephesians chapter 2. You can follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, let's pray as we begin. Lord, this is your word, and so we ask that your word would move mightily and powerfully among us this morning. We need your help. We need your spirit to grant 
wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you and the power that, that you show towards us who believe. And so I pray, Father, Son, Spirit, that this word would, would do work this morning. We are in need of you, and so we ask that you would, you would meet us. Open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts, and grant us wisdom and understanding and knowledge in all that we need. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as chapter 1, so, so as we've walked through at the end of chapter 1, Paul prayed that the Christians might know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards Christians. So remember that? That was the, that was the third prayer at the end of chapter 1 that he prayed. That's in verse 19. So if you have a Bible, you should open it to Ephesians chapter 2 because we're, we're going to be looking down at a lot of verses here. But there in, in, in verse 19 of chapter 1, his prayer is that they might know the power of God, the great power. And then he, he listed the three displays of God's power, which are the resurrection, the ascension, and the reign of Jesus. Right? So that's his examples of God's power. And he's saying, I want you to know that same power that, that was at work in Jesus in those events is now at work in you as believers. And Paul's point as he transitions to chapter 2 is to show that power that has been exerted in their lives from God. He's going he's to recount for them in these verses very simply and specifically how God's power has been exerted in their lives. And he's going to show that the source of that transformation is God's power and God's power alone. That's the only thing that could bring about the transformation that has occurred. And the transformation, maybe you heard it as we, as we read, the transformation is simply this, new life from sure death by way of divine grace. That's a transformation. New life, which has come from sure death, and it's come by way of divine grace. Or maybe this is simpler to remember, boys and girls, maybe you can remember this. It's death to life by grace. That's a story. Death to life by grace. That's Ephesians 1, 2, 1 through 10 in, in three words. Death to life by grace. So Paul reminds them of the mighty change that's been effected in their lives. They were spiritually dead, but out of his great kindness and mercy, God has made them alive. Death to life by grace. And so as we work through this passage, the, the flow is really simple. It is simple, and so we'll, we'll see through as we go. So, so the outline, we're going to see in verses 1 through 3, point 1, dead apart from Christ. And then we're going to see the second point, verses 4 through 7, made alive with Christ. So that's the outline. So dead apart from Christ, then made alive with Christ. So death to life. So let's start there, verses 1 through 3, dead apart from Christ. So, so Paul begins... Chapter 2, with, with verses of, of sure death. Look there in verse 1. How does Paul view this, this sure death that every Christian has been saved from? What's, what's the cause of this death that Paul talks about? Look there in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So trespasses and sins are what you were dead in, Paul says. Now, now here, there's no distinction between trespasses and sins. Right? These, are, these are two words that, that make the same point. They, they mean the same thing here. So he says, and you were dead in your sins and trespasses. And so these two terms are used to describe what, what is the natural state of humanity. This is the way you were born, Paul is saying. A state of trespasses and sins, which another way of understanding that is a state of rebellion against God. And so Paul says that, that every single person... Men, women, boys, girls, every person finds themselves in this state. 
This is the, natu- this is the state that we, we enter the world into, a state of death. There's no exception. We're all naturally dead in trespasses and sins. That's what Romans 5, that's what Paul's arguing in Romans 5. By the nature of the fall of man, by the nature of our birth, by the nature of our, of our association with Adam, we are guilty and we continue to compound that guilt as we live. We are guilty in Adam. And so in, in, like in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say, in Adam all die. Right? All means all, no exception. In Adam all die. This is life in a fallen world. And like we, we saw in Romans 5, in those verses, sin came in through the world, to the world through one man, and through sin, death. And so death reigns in this world. It has spread to all men because all sinned in Adam and continue to sin. And so one trespass, Paul would say, leads to condemnation for all. This is the biblical doctrine of the fall. This is the starting point of the gospel. We, we, if we get this wrong... We don't understand the gospel. The reality is that every single person on the face of this planet right now, including you, is either right now in Adam or at one time was in Adam. No one escapes that. Which means that either, right now, you're either dead in your trespasses and sins, that's some of you right now, or at one point you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? Everyone is born in Adam, and you're either still there or, by God's grace, you're not there anymore. But that is common to every person, every human. And so Paul's point is that the spiritual state of humanity, who have not been transformed by God's grace, is death. I mean, that's his point. And we should note here, I think this is telling, that, that Paul's description is not that of some particularly decadent tribe or degraded segment of society, like those Republicans or those Democrats. Right? It's not some segment. It's not even the extremely corrupt paganism of his own day. He doesn't say, oh, oh like the, the, those, uh, the, those pagan worshipers uh, of that love goddess, the, the temple of Artemis. He doesn't refer to them. He says, all humanity falls into this category. This is Paul's biblical diagnosis in Scripture's biblical diagnosis of fallen man in society there and everywhere. The natural human condition is dead in sins and trespasses. This is basic to understanding the message of Christianity. This is the foundation, the necessary foundation of the gospel. Dead in sins and trespasses. Now, it, it should go without saying, but, but Paul obviously here doesn't mean you're literally dead. Right? It's not a literal death he's talking about. But, but the death here, it is real. Right? Just because it's not literal doesn't mean it's not real. It is a real spiritual death into which every human is born. Apart from Christ, these readers were dead because right, the nature of this existence is separation from the only one who can give life. And so when you're, you're born and you're dead in sins and trespasses, you are alienated, separated from the only one who can give you life. And so anyone apart from Christ is dead. And notice in verse 2 how Paul continues. So he describes this death, and it can come across a bit puzzling. So look there in verses 1 and 2. He says, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked. Right? That's a verb. You walked. So you were dead, Paul says, and your death consisted of you walking. It was an active death, if you will. 
And it can be a bit confusing because when we think of death, we don't think of walking, right? Maybe we love like the walking dead in the zombie movies, right? But most of us, normal people are like, no, dead people don't walk. Right? We think of still, motionless, lifeless. That's what death is. But, but that's not the death that Paul's talking about here. Instead, you were, Paul says, a dead man walking or a dead woman walking. So, so you didn't look dead, but you were. You didn't look dead, but you really were dead, which can be really, really dangerous. Right? So, so, so go tell your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family, say, you're, you're dead in your sins and trespasses. How are they going to respond? You are crazy. I'm not dead. I'm, a, I'm alive. Actually, that's what breath means. I'm alive. What are you talking about, dead? And so it's dangerous. It can just be written off. I'm not dead. Those Christians, that death they're talking about, that, they're, just, they're just kooky. But that's not the death that Paul's talking about here. It's not physical death. What Paul's talking about here is the, the death of Adam and Eve that they experienced in the garden when they ate of the tree. Remember, if the day they eat of that, you're surely going to die. That's the death that Paul's talking about here. So in that day, Adam and Eve, they, they were alienated from their creator, cast out of the garden, away from his presence, away from the, the presence of the one who had given them life, the only one who could, who could give them continual life. And so this is how Paul understands this death in verses 1 through 3. It's a death that involves walking and following and carrying out desires. So it's active. It, it appears to be life. But as Paul continues, it, it becomes clear it's not life at all. It appears that way, but it's actually only death. So notice there in the middle of verse 2 how he characterizes this death. So there in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, In which you once walked, how's that, how, how, how is this death, what did it look like? One, you're following the course of this world. Two, you're following the prince or the ruler of the power of the air. And so you're following the course of the world, you're following the prince of the power of the air, which aside, he says, which is the spirit now that's, that's at work in the sons of disobedience, which also, by the way, verse 3, we too once were there. Right? So, so Paul aside there saying that this is, this is the spirit at work now in this world, and, and this is the way we also once lived. And then verse, or, or number 3, how this death looked, you were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so this according to Paul, is the life of death. This is the natural state of fallen man. Being dead in trespasses and sins involves following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is understood as, as Satan himself, and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is what death looks like, and it's active, isn't it? Death, as defined by Paul here, is not understood as lifelessness or motionless existence, it's not a corpse in a coffin. Instead, death here is understood as life that's driven. But it's driven by the world and the devil and the flesh. And so Paul, as he groups these three together, th these, are, these are the anti-God forces, the unholy trinity, if you will. The world and Satan and the flesh, these three are anti-God forces who are all always working in concert to oppose and distort and ruin and kill God's purposes. Right? That, that is the sole purpose of the world and the flesh and Satan, to destroy and kill. And they seek to do that. 
They seek to destroy God's purposes in this world and God's people in this world and God's plans for this world. Right? That, that, that's what life in a fallen world consists of. And, and those who are dead, their life consists of death that is driven by these things. And so these forces control all human activity. All normal human activity is controlled by this. So all boys and girls in their natural state are controlled by this. And maybe that leads, needs the least amount of explanation. Right? If you've had young kids or grandkids, right, they're driven by their fleshly desires. Right? Try and take away a, a cookie from them, and you'll see. Right? It, no. This is not how the world is. This world resolve, revolves around me. Give it. Right? Or, or let a cousin or a friend take a new birthday present. Right? This is the, the, what's at work in all people. So all boys and girls are controlled by, by these forces. All men and women, all presidents, all governors, all CEOs, all veterans, all people. These forces together in the lives of every person on this planet who remain in their natural state work to ensure that people remain dead. Right? That, that's their point. They don't want life, so they work to keep the coffin nailed shut. And that's what Paul's saying. This is the human condition. And if you're a Christian, you once were there. And if you're not a Christian, you're still there. And what's ironic about this, I, I think this is ironic. This, right, a life driven by these things is, is proclaimed as the free life. Right? That's what it claims, right? I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever. I don't need God. I don't need religion. I don't need anything outside of myself. I don't want your restraints on me. I don't need them. I am my own captain. And on my own, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to map out my way because I'm free and I can do whatever I want. And it appears for all intents and purposes to be a life of freedom, doesn't it? But if you get a little deeper, the irony is the free life is actually anything but free. Notice what Paul says. You're not free because you're following the course of the world. You're not free because you're following the prince of the power of the air. You're not free because you're controlled, you're driven by your desires in your mind. And so a life that is lived dead in sins and trespasses, though, appears, though it appears to be free, is a life that's marked by slavery and death. It's not true freedom, but evidence of a fearful bondage to forces over which you have no control. You are controlled in this state. And so Paul's point is to make perfectly clear that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins can't make themselves alive. Paul's saying when you're dead, you can't solve the problem. You can't fix the issue. You can't pay the right amount of money. You can't go to the right classes. You can't hire the right contractor. You can't do it. Your death was such that you were helpless because the death you lived was controlled by forces that you have no power over. When you're dead in sins and trespasses, the deck is stacked against you. These powers, you can't even fully understand them, let alone conquer or defeat them. And so Paul's point and my point, and what I want you to hear this morning is that apart from divine intervention, you have no true or lasting hope, period. The only way for you to get from this death to life is by God's grace, by divine intervention. So the human condition is that of death in sins and trespasses. It's a dark picture, isn't it? 
Well, verse 3, it gets even darker. Look there at verse 3. If possible, I'd say it gets worse in verse 3. So after describing this state, he says, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And notice what he says next. And were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So notice how Paul defines humanity. He says, you once were there. It's where the rest of mankind is now, and it's described as children of wrath. Or by nature deserving of wrath. Or some translations may even say you are by nature objects of wrath. And Paul's point is in this state of death, not only are you helpless, but you also stand condemned. Right? In this state, if it isn't remedied, you will remain on a crash course with the wrath of God himself. And not just any God, but the holy God. God is holy. Did you know that? You're not, and I'm not. We're not. And if our our sin isn't addressed, our sin will be dealt with by the wrath of God who is holy. He's a holy God, and therefore he doesn't stand by idly when people act unrighteously or transgress his commands or show disdain to him as their creator or spurn, unkindness, or spurn his kindness and mercy. God's wrath is his natural right. That's who he is. And, and so though wrath isn't intrinsic to God, maybe this is helpful, it's not intrinsic to God, so if there were no sin, there'd be no wrath, but wrath is God's response His natural response to sin. And so when God sees sin, he must, because he is holy, respond with wrath. And that is is the, the boat, that's the direction that the boat of humanity is headed towards, God's wrath. And Paul consigns all of mankind to this state, in this course. And so Paul paints a picture of life apart from Christ in the darkest ways. And the darkest part is that you're helpless in your natural state. You're overpowered. You're enslaved. You're dead. You can't help yourself, right? This should be frightening to you. There's a weight that should be felt in this description of the reality of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. There's a gravity that should accompany the reality of this condition. But thank God that Paul didn't stop at verse 3. Right? He, he does go, verses 1 through 3, and it is heavy and it is dark, but he doesn't bring it up just to leave it there and, and let it sit on you. The gravity of this previous condition serves to magnify the wonder of God's mercy. And that's his point, isn't it? This is who you were. But God, this is who you are. This is really dark and bad and helpless, but God has made you alive. That's his point. So he brings up the bad so that when he talks about the good, the good is really good. He convinces you of your problem before he shows you your solution. The past is recalled not because the emphasis falls upon it, but in order to draw attention to God's mighty, powerful, transforming action. 
Only God can overcome verses 1 through 3 in that state. The only hope for fallen humanity is divine grace. And that's exactly what Paul turns to there in verses 4 through 7. So let's look at the second point. Made alive with Christ. Verses 4 through 7. Verse 4. Some have said these are the, the two greatest words in the English Bible. But God. But God. In light of all that came before, in light of what we deserved, in light of the course that we were on, God did not remain silent. God did not remain passive. God did not remain a bystander. God did something. And so to these Christians in Ephesus, Paul is saying, God transformed you from what you once were. And so in verses 4 through 7, this, this magnificent change, this transformation which God has effected, it's jubilantly sounded forth. And his gracious initiative and sovereign action stand in wonderful contrast with the hopeless condition of fallen humanity that was just described in verses 1 through 3. And so it's like the trumpet of God's grace that is sounded forth in light of what has just been described. Only God can save us. Our only hope of life from this death, our only hope for conversion, for transformation, is found in God intervening on our behalf. And the good news is that God did act. And notice here, the reason that he did something, the reason that God acted, it doesn't really have anything to do with you and me. It didn't really have anything to do with what we deserve. Right? Since we were dead in sins and trespasses, deserving of God's just judgment and condemnation, we must experience salvation or conversion or transformation. Our experience of that is totally unmerited. What we deserved is not what we got. And so what we got is unmerited, not deserving. It's not because he said, oh, I'm going to bless them because they look like they're blessworthy. That's not why God acts. He doesn't say, oh, I want them on my team. I mean, look around. Do you want each other on your team? I mean, I don't want me on your team. Right? Apart from God's grace, I would be no asset to God's team. And so God doesn't look down and say, oh, I'm going to choose the best and the wisest and the strongest it's not about the players. It's about God. It's about God. And so God acted simply because God is gracious and merciful, and he wanted others to know that. God showed mercy to you and to me because God wanted to show mercy to you and to me. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. God did it because that's who God is. The picture was bleak, yes, but God acted, and he acted because of his love and his mercy. And this is the essence of amazing grace. Isn't it? We got what we didn't deserve. We got way better than what we deserved. Grace is unmerited, unearned, not deserved, and this is what God has shown us. And so as Paul begins describing this transformation, this conversion, this transition from, from death to life, his emphasis is on the initiative of God. He wants you to know that it's God who's done this. And so verse 4, look. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's what God did. He made us alive together with Christ. 
He made us alive together with Christ. The only hope for fallen humanity must be found in the God who is rich in mercy and whose love is great. That's your only hope. That's my only hope. I mean, Titus, Titus 3 will say, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's who God is, Romans 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you want to know if God loves you? Don't look at your circumstances, don't look at your life, don't look at your feelings, don't look at anything except for Jesus crucified, buried, and risen. That is the display of God's love. God acted to remedy our fallen state, our our death and sins and trespasses, and he acted because he's rich in mercy and because his love is great. So what did he do? How did he he do this? Verse 4, he made us alive together with Christ. Then skipping down to verse 6, he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So notice, God's done three things, Paul says. You were dead, but God, because of the great love with which, you loved you, with which he loved you, because he's rich in mercy, he's done three things. He's made you alive, he's raised you, and he's seated you in the heavenlies, or the heavenly places. And all of these things, all these actions, Paul says, are done with Christ, or in union with him. Did you notice that? He says, we're made alive together with Christ, we're raised up with Christ, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So Paul's emphasis is on union with Christ. Your union with Christ is how you've been saved. This is how God has acted. This is how Paul understands the doctrine of salvation. If you want to be transformed, if you want to be saved, if you want to be delivered from this state of death, you must be united to Jesus so that his death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. His life becomes your life. His ascension becomes your ascension. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Right? This is salvation, united to him. And so our union with Jesus is the means through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. It's through your union with Jesus. Every benefit of salvation comes through Christ as I'm found in Christ, united to him. And here is why Paul is stressing this union. He's stressing it because my relationship with God cannot exist apart from being united with Christ. Every aspect of my relationship to God and and also every aspect of God's relationship to me is in some way connected to how I'm related to Jesus. Either I'm united to him or I'm not. Either I'm alive in him or I'm not. Either I'm raised with him or I'm not. Either I'm seated with him or I'm not. I cannot be in a relationship with God. I can't know God. I can't have communion with God if I'm not united to Jesus. And so the only way for you to be delivered is to be united to Christ. And that comes, skipping ahead, looking down at verse 8, comes by faith. This is all throughout the New Testament. We're united to Jesus by faith, by faith, by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the means by which I'm united to Jesus. And so when I put my faith in Jesus, the Father sees me in him. And so he no longer sees me, but he sees his beloved, and he acts accordingly. 
When I'm united to Christ by faith, I receive every benefit of salvation. It comes to me through my union with Jesus. I can't know God if I'm not united to Christ. And so by nature of our union with him, his death becomes our death, and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. His life becomes our life, and his ascension and reign become our ascension and reign. So that the doctrine of union with Christ means that the Christ events become Christian's events. So the Christ events become the Christian's events. So in Paul's mind, Christ's death and resurrection are not merely events that produce benefits for Christians. Not just these events, oh yeah, they happen one time and, and you get benefits from them. No, in Paul's mind, they are events in which the Christian is included. So that you are actually crucified with Jesus and buried with him and raised with him. You're united with him so that the Christ events become your events. Which is why every aspect of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ is important. It matters if he was really dead and buried and really raised from the dead. Because if he wasn't, I'm not. And so how do I know that I'm free from the death that I deserve? Because I'm united to Christ and his death was my death when he was crucified and died, so did I. How do I know that I have new life? Well, because I'm united to Christ and his resurrection was my resurrection. So when he was raised, so was I. How do I know that I have power and authority over the powers of darkness in this world that oppose God? Because I'm united to Christ and his ascension is my ascension. When he was seated in heaven with all power and authority because of my union with him, so was I. Because I'm united to Christ, because I'm in Him, everything is different. My union with Christ changes everything. So that I'm transformed, I'm different, I'm not what I once was. My identity is now found in Christ. My destiny is now found in Christ. My purpose for life is now found in Christ. My hope for now and later is found in Christ. Jesus changes everything. Even death to life. And God has done this for the believer. And he's done this, notice there in verse 7. He's done all of this so that, here's purpose clause, in the coming ages he might show or display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, God's purpose, his whole purpose in, in transforming or raising from dead to life, his purpose was that those who are united to Christ should serve as a demonstration of his extraordinary grace for all eternity. That's why he did it, to display his character. This transformation that God brings about in the life of the Christian, this conversion from death to life, is a display of God's immeasurably great grace and kindness. So that your new life is a trophy for all to see, not to see you and say, wow, you're great, but look at what you are because of God's kindness. And everyone who's here that's a Christian should be able to say that, I am not what I once was. I'm not where I need to be yet, but I'm not what I once was. That's why God does this. 
to display his mercy and his kindness. It's the life of every Christian, the life of his church. It ought to stop people in their tracks. It ought to be a sign to the world. The Christian life, the testimony of the church in this world should be a sign that points the world to say God is gracious and God is kind and God transforms lives. Paul says that's why God chose you and redeemed you and saved you. And so throughout time and eternity, the church, this society of pardoned rebels, of once dead people who have now been made alive, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. And so our lives look different, which is what we'll, we'll turn our attention to next week, Lord willing. But here to close... I just want to close with, with addressing two people. Not two people by name, but two groups of people. So, so first, if you're here and you have been made alive with Christ, so, so if you fall in this category, when, when Paul says, and you once were, but you've been made alive, if that's you this morning, if you've been made alive and raised and seated with Christ, I would command you to rejoice to celebrate, to be encouraged by the fact that, believer, God is rich in mercy and he's loved you with a great love. He saved you even when you're dead in your sins and trespasses. Rejoice that in Christ God has poured out the immeasurable riches of his grace upon you and he showed great kindness to you. And so if that's you, we're going to sing a song in a minute that I, I can almost guarantee you know. And so think about the words. Because if this is you, you have reason to rejoice in the amazing grace that God has poured out on you. And so it's a response time for you. Second group of people, if you're here, you're not united to Christ. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you've not been united to him in his death and his resurrection, I would simply ask, why will you remain that way? Why are you content to stay there? Why will you refuse to put your faith in Christ? He is your only sure hope. Christ alone is your hope, friend. You can have no relationship with God apart from being united to Christ. And you can have no benefits of salvation, no blessings, no future, no hope, no life apart from faith in Christ. And so it's simply call you to put your faith in Jesus to turn from your sins, your sins and trespasses that, that, that are characteristic of your death, turn from those and put your faith in Jesus and be saved. And so if you're here, you're, you're in school, boys and girls, you have to put your faith in Jesus. Your parents, your grandparents, everyone wants that for you. We want you to know Jesus. I want you to put your faith in him and be united to him so that you can have forgiveness of sins and a promise of a future with him forever. And so boys and girls, talk to your mommy and daddy. Talk to me or Pastor Kevin about what it means to put your faith in Jesus because we want you to do that. If you're out of school, if you're working, if you're in the military, if you're not working anymore, if you're retired, if you're here, 
there's hope for you. You can be found in Christ by faith, by putting your faith in him. So boy or girl, man or woman, I would call you, if you're not united to Christ, if you're not putting your faith in him, your situation is dark and bleak. According to verses 1 and 3, but there's hope for you because these verses paint a bright future that is available to anyone who would put their faith in Jesus. And so I, I, I close by, by, by giving you the words of Jesus who in John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, whoever hears and believes that that's faith, whoever, whoever does this, has eternal life. He or she does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray as we close.